Welcome to Beyond Medicine. My name is Rami Webby. I'm the host of the podcast. I'm a physician with a particular interest in healthcare innovation, building a better healthcare experience, and overall health and well-being. In this podcast, we bring you inspiring leaders from across the medical landscape to help us build a better medicine and lead a better life. We hope you enjoy. What's up, everybody? I am with Dr. Margaret Rutherford, psychologist and author of the book Perfectly Hidden Depression. Dr. Rutherford also has a column on psychology today, uh, has been featured on Psych Central, and has a wealth of knowledge that she's going to be sharing with us today. And I'm super excited to have you on with us, Dr. Margaret Rutherford. Thank you so much. Oh, sure, Robbie. I'm delighted to be here. Just (laughs) delighted. Saturday morning, really early. (laughs) Beautiful, beautiful. And, uh, you know, I think uh, just reading through a little bit of your book from the beginning really hooked me and really got me thinking about a lot of things and uh, about some people that I might know as well. And um, before we get into this, can we get a little, get a, get a little bit of your background, how you discovered your work, and uh, just a little bit of your story? Sure. Well, I didn't start out wanting to be a psychologist. I, in fact, was a professional singer in my 20s. I sang uh, jingles, you know, commercials on radio and television. And then I uh, was a horrible rock and roll singer. And so I started, I just jumped up and down a lot and, you know, screamed. And so I started singing jazz and, but I wasn't real happy in that lifestyle. So I did it for eight or nine years and I heard about this thing called music therapy, I got my degree in that, but then that led me into clinical psychology. So literally in nine years, Robbie, I went from closing down the Fairmont in Dallas to (laughs) seeing my first patient. Uh, So it's quite a decade, quite a decade. And um, I got into this. I never wanted to write a book. I started a blog uh, seven years ago that actually was on empty nest. I called it nest ache, A-C-H-E. And that did pretty well, but I started itching to write about mental health because that's what I do. So I started doing that in about early 2014. And in April of that of that year, I just sat down to write my normal uh, blog post for the week. But I was thinking about some of the people that I had seen through the years that I never, they would never have said they were depressed they came in because of anxiety. They came in because of an eating disorder. They came in because of just feeling fatigued. Um, but they would tell me these things about themselves. Like this one woman told me that she had been raped the week before she started college. And, but she was smiling, Robbie. I I mean, it was like she was telling me what she'd had for lunch. Mm. And so I started thinking about people like her and the difference in the treatment. And I wrote this post called the perfectly hidden depressed person. Are you one? Well, it went viral. And when it went on the Huffington post, I got hundreds of emails saying, this is me. I can't believe you're talking about this. I've never heard about this, which piqued my interest. So not being necessarily a researcher, but I thought, okay, what's out there about perfectionism and depression? And of course, I found Dr. Brene Brown's work, which I guess I'd been living under a rock that I didn't didn't know that uh, who she was at the time. But I also found some other research, but not a whole lot. There was a book that had been written in 1998 by Terrence Real called I Don't Want to Talk About It, but it was more about male depression. Nowhere could I find some kind, except in formal research, could I find any popularized book that that began linking perfectionism with actually severe depression. Mm. And so that's what started me uh, on the book. uh, And I've been been following that lead and and going on that journey now for five and a half years. Mm -hmm. And it's really great to have you on the podcast now because a lot of our audience are medical professionals and type A personality people who do have a perfectionist personality. And sure. I think a lot of us uh, have that perfectionism in us. And Me uh, as well. 
Yeah, so I'm really glad and I'm really curious to kind of dive a little bit deeper into this. I read in the beginning of your book uh, a really interesting story that you talked about someone, a friend who you had visited at home. And I was really um, kind of, you know, just a little, I I can't even describe the words I had as I was reading this, but could you please share that story just really quick because it's so powerful. You mean the one that was in the preface or in the intro? In the preface, yeah. In yeah, the preface. she wasn't a friend. She was actually someone that I was seeing, and I had diagnosed her with anxiety, basically anxiety disorder NOS. Um, and so, uh, but I had seen her probably three or four months. She would kind of come in and then come out, and she would worry about money and it was back in the days of pagers and my pager went off and it was her husband who I'd met once or twice. Now, again, I live in a fairly small town. So often that distinction that in a larger metropolitan area that you have no clue who your patients are, nor they you mm-hmm. just, it simply isn't true in something like in somewhere like Fayetteville. Mm-hmm. So he called me and we talked and he said, I'm, I'm on my way back to Fayetteville, but I'm really worried about, let's call her Jane. I've forgotten what I call her in the book right now. Um, and so would you go check on her? And I thought, oh, no, I'll call 911. <laughs> you know, that's not very ethical. But he said, I know you know where we live, and it's literally a minute away. And would you please just I, I don't know. I have this nagging feeling and I began to have the nagging feeling, too. So I went over to her home. He told me how to get in. And I walked in, Rami, and it was perfectly quiet. The whole house was very neatly arranged. Um, there were there was no mess. There was no disorder. There was no sign of anything being wrong, but it was eerily quiet. And I called out her name. Obviously, I'd never been in her home before, so I didn't want to startle her. So I said her name softly at first, and then I began to walk down what I I assumed was a hallway to a bedroom and she was there and she was in bed and she had taken more than half a bottle of pills and a full bottle of alcohol, benzodiazepines. Mm-hmm. And so I called 911 from her home phone and she said, no, don't call. I'm fine. And I, I said, no, you're not fine. So they came and took her to the hospital and she later got wonderful treatment. Um, But I sat there in her home and realized something started in me, something I, I, there was this realization of, wow, I would never have diagnosed this woman with depression. Um, And I'd been, by that time, I'd been in practice five, six, seven years. I was, you know, fairly, um, I mean, things, I'd seen a lot of different kinds of depression, but I began wondering at the time, are there more people like this? And I didn't, as I said in a few minutes ago, I didn't think about writing a book about it. I just began to be more alert Mm -hmm. for the signs of someone who really could not express painful emotion. As I say in the book, it would have been a perfectly neat, silent, quiet suicide. Mm. And what was it that you ended up discovering about this woman afterwards? Well, what I discovered was that she actually had chronic suicidal thoughts. She just never wanted to admit to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had much more of an alcohol problem than she let on. She was drinking steadily. Um, she had been sexually abused as a child, which she had not shared with me by a grandfather. Uh, she there were some things in her marriage that were problematic, but mostly she, she hated what she did. Um, and she was forcing herself to do it because of money reasons. Mm -hmm. And she was just struggling. So, but she did not know how to put words to that struggle. So when she got out of rehab, that's what we began doing was helping her understand that she could talk about these things and she could begin to work through them and she could stop living by all these rules that she was trying to follow that had been governing her life for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. And she was extremely perfectionistic, but to the, but what the difference between just regular old striving for excellence, like probably a lot of your listeners do Mm -hmm. as well as hopefully me. um, But it's, it's, it's fueled by shame. And so there's this constant inner critic 
that's going on that I talk a lot about in the book. And so one of my concerns uh, for anybody like this is that both the stigma of seeking mental health treatment, again, maybe that's why they can't come in and say, sometimes I feel suicidal. They don't want to be that person with the problem. In fact, a lot of them say, you know, I'll walk inside. Well, I wonder if if you're dealing with depression. No, no, I'm not. I I have too many blessings. Mm, Yeah. And the, you mentioned in the book that she had said, no, I would never um, do that. I have a wonderful husband and a wonderful family and, you know, use those things as a cover up in a way. Is that what you would describe that? Exactly. In fact, the denial is so strong and the, the rigid compartmentalization of any kind of revelation of sadness or fear or fatigue or anything like that is just not something they do. Mm. Um, they, they consider it weakness. They consider it um, not doing their part, not, not being grateful, mm. not being grateful. And so this is, um, I mean, I've had people come to me now because of my writing about perfectly hidden depression. And they, I mean, they will admit to me when I walked in your office, I had a plan to die by suicide. Mm. And I'm not going to do that now. I've, I've learned skills. I'm not the same person anymore. So um, it is such a, you know, I'm sure there's some practitioners who may be listening but to say, but if someone doesn't tell me, you know, how I'm not a mind reader. Mm. And what my hope is for the book is that, of course, you can't be a mind reader as a provider. But what you can be you can have some understanding that perhaps this perfect looking life, that there are some characteristics, there's some very common traits of someone with perfectionism, that if you begin to find them together, Mm. that you at least suspect that something else is going on. And you don't just say, gosh, you need to get more sleep or, you know, you give them a benzodiazepine or you, you just, um, you, you under, diagnose because you're not asking the questions that need to be asked. Mm. What what are those symptoms that you talk about or what are those traits that people kind of express when they have, when they have this? Sure. Um, now this is a syndrome, you know, this is not a diagnosis. Right. I mean, for, you know, nobody knew what codependence was. It wasn't defined until a bunch of people, who were trying to understand the people who stayed in relationships with alcoholics mm-hmm. began putting together this list of traits right. that, and then we began calling it codependency. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I've tried to do. I've tried to say, okay, what are the things you typically find together in people who have, who identify with this perfectly hidden depression? And what I did, Rami, every uh, blog post that I wrote about it at the time, I included an invitation to get in touch with me. So I did about 60 or 65 interviews. I had a brain surgeon. I had um, an advertising exec in California. I had a motivational speaker. Mm-hmm. I had all these people who said, and they did it anonymously. I, you know, I, I know who they are, but of course I would not reveal their identities. Mm-hmm. And some of them were out whispering in their garage, but they say, I don't want anybody to live this life that I've lived. It's too lonely. It's too despairing. No one knows me. So the the syndrome, uh, the 10 traits of the syndrome are, again, major one, perfectionism with it, again, fueled by this inner critical shaming voice constantly. You can never live up to your own expectations or others that you perceive. These folks always have their hand up in the air. They are incredibly responsible, uber responsible people to the point that when they accept a new responsibility. They don't take anything off their plate. They just add it on. A healthier person will say, well, if I accept that uh, committee uh, membership, I'm going to have to not pick up my kids every day after school. You know, they they balance things out. People with perfectly hidden depression don't know how to do that. These people worry a lot, um, they, and they really seek a lot of control. And this is sort of a vicious cycle where if their worry makes them want to control things. You know, I'm worried that my parent isn't going to be taken care of in the, the, in the home that I've had to put them in, and so I'm going to take over that care 
you know, and so this worry and control is kind of this vicious cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, they Again, they discount pain uh, or even deny it. Any kind of emotional trauma, no, no trauma. In fact, sometimes when I say, I think, I think you have trauma, they go, no, that, that's a word that's meant for other people. Mm-hmm. Um, they are a great friend to other people. These are folks that will say, you know, their friends will say, gosh, she's just always there for me. Or he always stops by my desk and asks me how I'm doing. He remembers the name of my children. But when it comes to knowing them, no one knows them. Very few people know them, really know them. Mm. Um, They don't know. There's some great research. Gordon Flett and Paul Hewitt up in Canada have this research about the fact that perfectionists can describe emotion, but they cannot express it. And so they can say, I'm, you know, my mother-in-law died two months ago and I really miss her. She was special to me, but there are no tears in their eyes. They don't know how to feel a feeling. Mm-hmm. They're scared to feel feelings. Um, again, I've already said they count their blessings. In fact, they chastise themselves if they don't. They are usually extremely professionally successful, but they don't have any, they, they're, their personal relationships don't have intimacy in them. Mm-hmm. These are people that will say to you, you know, I really count on my marriage or my partnership. It's really great. And then you'll say, well, what have y'all done together in the last year or two? Well, you mean with the kids? No. I mean, just the two of you. Oh, well, you know, we just go with friends. I mean, they, they don't have, they don't create a chance for intimacy in their, in their, in, in their personal relationships. Mm-hmm. The other is a more um, fact-oriented kind of thing. I think frequently these people have co-occurring um, anxiety or con- anxiety disorders or con- disorders that have to do with control, like eating disorders, like OCD, like GAD, um, and sometimes even those can mask as um, well. Perfectly depression is not a diagnosis, but sometimes someone can come in. And look like they're just OCD, and really they have some of these traits of perfectly hidden depression too. And it just helps you understand more of the complete picture. Right. Interesting. So this going, uh, I had a question about the intimacy part. Sure. What exactly do you mean by that? Can you explain further uh, someone not being able to have that intimacy with someone? Sure. Well, when you think about it, if I can't express my emotions with you, um, if I don't know how to do that, I'm very likely, what, what kind of partners do these people typically choose? They typically choose people who either are just like them and are keep things on a fairly superficial level emotionally, or they choose someone to be with that is uh, likes them being very uber responsible, uh, likes the fact that they don't. Um, they're not particularly comfortable either in talking about emotional uh, intimacy. Um, But these are folks who, I mean, I have partners of people with, um, well, let me start that over again. I've received a lot of emails from people who say, I think my wife is, has this problem or my husband has this problem because I, they won't let me in. I want to be close to them. I I want to feel like either our sexual life is more intimate or she or he is able to be vulnerable with me. But I've been married to her or him for five or six years, and I couldn't tell you much about them. I had a guy write me that he'd been married twice before, and he said, one of the things that I know is that I kept myself invulnerable in that relationship. I I didn't share who I really was. And so guess what? The women in the relationship who wanted more, they wanted more connection, had affairs. He said, in, in many ways, I set that up because they were so lonely that I, because I could not interact with them on a softer or a deeper level. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that these folks choose partners or cho- or choose people who will put up with that or choose people who really want and seek that in them, but then they, they struggle to do it. They struggle to allow themselves to do that. Mm-hmm. 
Is this more like a personality thing or is this something more something somebody is just a way of how they are? Or is it more part of this perfectionist depression that they maybe fall into or fall out of? Or is this just kind of something a part of who they are? Sure. Rami, the way I've thought about that, at least my perspective, is that it is a strategy that they concocted either consciously or unconsciously to handle whatever was going on in their childhood. And there are, there's not just, you know, there are many roads to Rome. Um, There are many roads to developing this perfectionistic kind of identity. Um, Let's talk about someone who was screamed at that they weren't ever going to amount to anything. Well, guess what they decide to do? They're going to amount to something. But they never deal with the pain of being screamed at and being told that they were worthless. There's also the the example of someone who was the star of their family. They were praised for their accomplishments. Many doctors are probably like that. And so what did they do? But they grabbed onto the idea that I'm not valuable unless I'm accomplishing. So they are, they become very task oriented and they, they grab on to being a lawyer or being an accountant or being a doctor or being a, a very successful person making a lot of money because that's what's going to get them their sense of worth. There are people who grew up in families, many families, believe it or not, it's 2019, but many families, either culturally or regionally or religiously or whatever, have reasons why they they shame their children for being afraid or being angry or being sad. We don't do that in this family. You know, buck up, go to your room until you could act nicer. You know, don't, you know, anger is not allowed in here. So. Uh, people will, children will develop that strategy. And what happens, and I see this in therapy all the time, that when we try to bring our childhood strategies that may have worked, may have kept us safe and secure, but we try to bring them into our adulthood, then that's where they're problematic. Hmm. Um, The woman that we talked about at the very beginning, her strategy to handle the sexual abuse, which of course she never told anybody, was to do what her mother and dad wanted her to do. She became very rule oriented. She became, and they wanted her to be, I won't reveal what she is, but because it's a small community, but, or was, but she was in a white collar profession Mm -hmm. and she was only there because it would please her parents. Um, Gosh, there are all kinds of things. I mean, you grow you grow up as a child with an addicted parent, and so you become the adult in your family, and you so you don't talk about your anger or your sorrow or your fear mm-hmm. because you're taking care of other kids. Mm-hmm. So there are lots of reasons of of how this is developed, but basically, all of those people, what they do is that you know we all have the ability to compartmentalize something bad happening. If my dog had died this morning, but I had this interview with you, I would best as I could compartmentalize that. My sadness, I'd say, I'll get to that later in the day. But right now I need to talk with Rami. We all compartmentalize things. People who identify with perfectly hidden depression rigidly compartmentalize. I had a woman that said it's kind of like you're stuffing things in a box. And she said, if I have an emotion that I don't have a box for, I build a bigger box. So rather than saying, gosh, I really need to feel this, I really need to deal with this, they will they will erect, they will create a, a mental structure for themselves where they just push it away. It's dissociation of some kind in some ways, mm-hmm. but it's really more just very rigid compartmentalization that turns into denial. Yeah. So um, that factor is what what, what um, pulls all of them together because with, no matter what circumstance you grew up in, if you develop this, and again, I use the term consciously or unconsciously because I think there is some level where people know they're doing this. There are other people who have no clue. I would have people write me who said, it wasn't until I saw the words perfectly hidden depression that I realized, wow, my gut has been trying to tell me something and I wasn't listening. Mm. All right. So so what I'm getting is childhood is a major, major um, contributor to a lot of these symptoms as you described. And I can definitely see the way you grow up or the things that have affected you growing up playing a part into 
your identity, your personality, your traits. And what interests me is, I guess, thinking about maybe if someone was listening and they were like, wow, that's me. You know, yeah. is there is there a light at the end of the tunnel for them? Is there a way to break free from that? Is there a way to get a hold of that? Or are people just doomed to the faith they were given throughout childhood? Or is there some flexibility? No. no. I, I mean, I've been a therapist for 25 years. And if I didn't believe that you could change and you could alter things that, you know, were difficult or even traumatic in your childhood, I, I would be one depressed person myself. <laughs> right. I think we'd all be. <laughs> You know, so um, if you hear yourself, if you think, gosh, maybe this could be me, um, you know, I'm an advocate for therapy, but my book is a workbook. And so uh, it has a lot of exercises, reflections, uh, 62 of them, I think, in fact, of ways to get started with the caveat, the, the very strong caveat that if this gets too hard for you, if you feel like you're getting overwhelmed either by thoughts of hurting yourself or just simply by the enormity of what you realize you've never you've never connected with, that you do seek professional help. Um, that you can start certainly with a friend and say, there are things about me that you don't know and you seem like the the best person for me to tell or the most the person I could trust. You 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 start small. Mm-hmm. But through the, I, I do have these stages of healing, and the first one is consciousness. You have, I mean, you have to recognize a problem as a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, people think of their perfectionism as a friend, and as something they count on. Um, and, but at the same time, it can get very, very dangerous. There's some great research out there now about they're linking and correlating perfectionism with suicide. Um, and I'm sure all of us painfully and tragically know someone who we saw a month ago and they were fine. Maybe they were a little stressed, but they were fine. And then a month later, they've, they've died by suicide. So there's another great book out there called What Made Maddie Run, which is a book about a college athlete, track athlete, who who killed herself. And, you know, they knew she was a little depressed, but they had no idea that she was actually searching online for ways to, to die. Mm. And there are many people like that. Many. I think that's one of the reasons the suicide rate is going up. I, I think that this wave of perfectionism, that social media is not helping any, Absolutely, yeah. um, is really contributing to more and more people um, making that choice. Or getting so hopeless that they make that choice. Right. Because it does show you all of the, you know, you get to see what everybody's, you know, like everybody's highlight reel and see what right. everybody else is up to. And you compare yourself and you think you're not good enough and things like that. And so I do, I do definitely see that as a, as a contributor. And, and I guess for someone trying to heal, how do they become conscious of things that, you know, they may think that they're they're fine or they're just, you know, living life and doing whatever they need to do. Where do they, like, how do they start to even realize, like, hey, this is something that's really affecting me. This is something that I need to deal with. Where where does that process start for, for someone who's maybe dealing with this or any other kind of problem? Sure. Well, it, it takes a lot of honesty with yourself. I think that we've all got this... Um, Ability to tune into our, our kind of our gut. I mean, I, for example, one woman I saw last year told me, she said, I knew something was wrong. And all the people that I interviewed said, I knew something wasn't right. But I went to the criteria for depression and I didn't find myself there. I'm not, I don't look depressed. No one, I mean, I'm, Yes, I'm tired, but I get everything done I'm supposed to do and more. I I don't have anhedonia or the lack of pleasure and pre- pleasurable activities. I I love what I do. I'm very active, I'm engaged. And so but what was wrong? And so I think if you you have to listen to that small voice and so and well, I didn't finish that story. She said I shamed myself even more because I'd looked 
because I'd looked. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not recognizing that, or better put, I I I'm ashamed that I looked to see if I were depressed because I'm obviously not mm. by those criteria. Mm-hmm. And so I'm terrible because I even considered that idea. Yeah. And I do think that, not that I think my book is a panacea for health, but for finding out some answers, but I'm hoping it's going to be helpful to people who say there's another kind of depression. There's a, I'm challenging the psychiatric and the psychological community to look at this. I mean, little old me is doing that, mm-hmm. but I, I do think we're not looking, we're not thinking outside of the box. Mm-hmm. So we can help people who come in and say, I, you know, I don't know what's wrong, but I just feel like something's off. Mm-hmm. And rather than saying, well, are you sleeping enough? How are you eating? We'll say, well, is there anything in your childhood that happened that you've never particularly looked at? Mm -hmm. I mean, we're all planting seeds all the time. So, um, how how important is the childhood part? Like, uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't know exactly. You know, between what ages or what ages things happen, but. How can you even know if something affected you from childhood? Is it something that's like your conscious? Is it something you're just totally unaware of and you just don't know it's affecting you? Or do you kind of have a hint that, yeah, this is probably playing into why I'm like this? You know, I, as a psychologist, it's really hard for me to believe sometimes that people don't recognize that what happened to them in their childhood affects them as an adult. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, you know, I know that <laughs> that's hard to believe. I've had people. I, I worked with this guy a couple of years ago, and he was this really bright guy, and he, he was just flabbergasted. He said, but that, none of that matters. That's my childhood. Mm-hmm. I go, no, we all have, you know, we all form our beliefs and form our strategies and learn what love is. And, and if you're not loved well, that's what you learn love is. Mm. You know, you seek what's familiar. Yeah. And so I, I, what in the book I talk about doing a timeline where you go back and, and look at yourself as a two-year-old, a four-year-old, an eight-year-old, a 12-year-old, a, and you begin to say, what were the good things that happened that affected my, my growth, my, my, um, my own journey. I hate that word, but anyway, you know, m- who am I that had something to do with maybe you want a uh, maybe you want a spelling bee or maybe you were bullied or maybe you know we don't have to talk about particularly horrible traumatic things that you were kidnapped or that you were whatever but obviously if you were that's going to have an effect mm-hmm. on you as an adult and so it's beginning to you do with this timeline you begin to see and have compassion for yourself you know maybe that's really the answer to your question is that we've got to have compassion for who we were. One of the men um, I worked with for a couple of years, he had worked with me for a bit. And then he said, he was just beginning to realize the shame he carried around. And he said, I found a picture of myself when I was six. And I looked at that picture and I wanted to say to that little boy, don't grow up because you're going to make so many mistakes. You hear the shame in that? Mm-hmm. It's incredible. Yeah. Rather than saying, you know, you're going to make mistakes, but mistakes don't define you any more than your successes do if you don't let them. And so it is about recognizing the lack of self-compassion, the shame, the terrible, critical self that you carry around with you and, and you, and, you know, actually um, the most dangerous kind of perfectionism is what's called socially prescribed perfectionism, where you feel like the expectations of others keep rising and rising and rising and you can't keep up or you, you do keep up. And so you're more pressured and more pressured and more pressured to, you know, you do well and then you're expected to do better and then you're expected to do better. Mm. And that is a, 
that's a stepladder that, you know, the steps keep getting smaller and smaller and it's harder and harder to keep your balance. And you can uh, lose that balance and lose your ability to hang on to your emotional stability. What I'm always curious about is how, like, two opposite ends of the spectrum, how one person could possibly go through the same exact thing as another person. You bet. And one person totally not be affected and another person be totally affected. And is this a product of having compassion for yourself or having that ability to cope with things in a different way? Or is it just, that's what always interests me. Why are some people more prone than, than, than others? I don't know if this is too deep of a question or if I'm getting no. too... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, some studies, some studies, uh, PTSD studies come to mind of they've looked at um, people who go to war and the people that develop PTSD and the people that don't. Mm-hmm. And basically it, you know, here we go again. It goes back to what they experienced as a child. Mm-hmm. And if if they are. If, if they had abuse or trauma in their childhoods, then they are, are just weren't attached well to their parents or weren't connected or whatever. They have a much greater likelihood of developing PTSD. So, you know, I don't want to freak out the moms and dads out there, but at the same time, those that safety and security and sense of um, a child learning how to soothe themselves and, um, and then they do that, they're able to do that as adults. Self-soothing is an ego skill. Mm. And so uh, you're right. Somebody can, I mean, look at what happens when a family member dies. Look at all of the different reactions to that grief that the family members have. It's Some people will just get to work and consider it, okay, we just got to you know, get these funeral arrangements done and they're going to business mode. Some people will break down sobbing. Some people will deny that really anything's happening. Um, We all have these different reactions, I think, based on a lot of how we began to handle issues as a child. Now, I will say, (laughs) I think probably one of the criticisms that I hear the most is that we therapists just want to go back and blame parents or uh, it's not about blame Rami mm-hmm. it's about acknowledgement exactly yeah um my mom loved me a lot and my dad loved me a lot but they spoiled me as a child i was really spoiled and so they that w- they loved me i was very secure mm-hmm. but when i got out into the world you know the world didn't revolve around margaret <laughs> mm-hmm. so i had to learn you know how to cope with that which you know that's just one of my things mm-hmm. um but we all have i mean that's that's a much better problem to have than when you're abused i'm not trying to equate those two things but mm-hmm. it's about going back to acknowledge what was that like how did i cope with it and what did I learn about myself? And then what am I doing in my adulthood that resembles that? Or I'm trying so hard not to be that, yeah. that I'm overdoing or, you know, so you look for, you look for when you, in the, in the moment you can look for when you're overreacting and under, I talk about that in the book, mm-hmm. you, you look for, um, I mean, I'll give you, to make it more clear, I'll use that same example with my own life. I was spoiled, and so I had to, I became very independent as an adult in order to sort of um, uh, compensate for that. Mm -hmm. And my husband will say, gosh, Margaret, you know, when I ask you if I can help you, you go, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I've got it. I've got Mm -hmm. it. That's an overcompensation on my part that I don't let people help me very much Mm -hmm. because I don't want to get spoiled. No, it's like this, I'm overdoing it. Yeah. So I think that's true for a lot of things. I think we overcompensate for whatever we feel deficient in or whatever we feel like is lacking in us. So we try to do the opposite to compensate for it. Right. And, but the other, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, 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 go, please. Well, the, the other, the opposite is also true. Let's say someone was screamed at as a child. And so she's attracted to, she or he chooses a, an abusive uh, partner. 
And she doesn't react to the abuse because it's familiar to her. So uh, underreaction can also be, uh, you know, mm. a, a sign that something that you're that something is getting triggered in your childhood. Right. Or if something's comfortable, that's maybe a negative trait or a negative something that a healthy person would consider negative that feels I, comfortable. I, and so, right, it's familiar. Familiar, right? Right. And I, I, I like to think of life as kind of like a game, you know, we're all dealt different cards and we all have to deal with different things, especially right. growing up. You know, we don't get to choose who our parents are. We don't get to choose the things that happened to us growing up. Right. But then we do get to choose how we deal with them and how we kind of heal ourselves. And maybe this whole going through life thing is a healing journey in a way to kind of figure yourself out and, and, and learn something about yourself. And I think so. And maybe just, ha I think there's, I think some people are discouraged to know they have a diagnosis or to mm. think they have a diagnosis and say, oh, something is wrong with me rather than say, oh, well, maybe this is just the life I was given and it's meant to teach me something and it's meant to show me what I need to learn about myself and I need to figure these things out and, and do the work. And you said something about, I'm not sure if you said something earlier about painful breakthroughs, but I really believe that a lot of times you got to go to the painful parts of you or the things that are causing you a lot of pain and kind right. of not run away from them, to confront them. And when you can break through those things, I think that's where the growth is happening. And maybe, maybe a lot of people are just running away from the pain and, you know, avoiding it and doing the things day to day and letting it all pile up. I, I I think that's accurate. The only thing I would wonder with you a little bit differently is I know people are are still scared of the stigma of mental illness diagnosis. Mm -hmm. um, so hopefully we're we're getting beyond that a little bit. But I do totally throw in with you about the idea that um, these painful breakthroughs. A woman immediately came to mind who had grown up in one of those families that never talked about painful things happening. And um, she always had this bright smile on her face and she was like this bustle of energy when she would come into my office. And, um, but she came in because she knew that she was needed this work. And one of the things that we had worked for several months and she was peeling the onion and you know, kind of getting to the deeper layers of herself. And one day she came in and she said, you know, I've never told you about this relationship I had in college. And I said, no. Well, this guy had been very abusive to her emotionally and sexually. And she had almost completely denied that that had any kind of effect on her. Interestingly, she and her husband, guess what, had problems sexually. Mm. And so, but she never... She and emotionally, he really was wanting to be close to her, and she didn't. She was refusing and withdrawing. Um, she never made the connection between what had happened with the guy in college and what was going on in her marriage now. And tears came to her eyes. I mean, the tears are not easy for these folks. And she said, "You know, I've I've got I've I just didn't realize this. I'm I'm." I'm still acting as if I'm about to be overpowered and that I feel I'm not going to be vulnerable. I'm not going to be vulnerable to anybody. You know, I decided after that relationship was done, finally, that I would never, you know, be a victim again. Well, she carried that too far. She had overreacted. Mm -hmm. And so she went home and talked with her husband about it. He was like, hallelujah, we, let's talk about this. I, I know this and I love you and I don't, I, I, I'm not about, you know, disempowering you. I just want to have a normal, intimate relationship with you. Mm -hmm. It was huge for her. Huge. And when those breakthroughs come, is there a relapse? Is there like, was it you just break through? And once you break through, you're kind of clearing your path? Or are you just prone to going back to your old kind of, kind of ways? Well, that's an interesting question because... I talk a lot about with my own patients about the fact that insight is very helpful. Insight can help you connect the dots, insight into whatever has made you you, 
um, is is a helpful tool, but I don't think it brings you hope. Mm-hmm. Where you get hope is from behavior change, and as you point out, from fairly consistent behavior change. Now, changing your behavior is hard. If you think about, okay, I'm going to give myself the the goal of brushing my teeth with my non-dominant hand. How many times are you going to reach for your toothbrush <laughs> before before yeah. you begin to say, oh, no, no, no way, non-dominant, non-dominant. Right. And so it will take you several weeks, if not. And that's an easy, you know, you can put a post-it note on your mirror about that one. Mm-hmm. What if you're trying to change this idea that I need to be more vulnerable? <laughs> you know, where are you going to put your post-it note? Right. So, you know, <laughs> on your forehead. Staple it on your forehead. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, and, and that's what, you know, again, touting therapy a little bit. Therapy can help you begin to see these examples of when you're you're still doing the same behavior, in essence, even though you say, well, I'm, it, but it's about taking small steps and congratulating yourself for those small steps because change can happen. I watch it every day. And and it's powerful. Mm-hmm. It's very powerful, but it doesn't happen overnight. And relapse is a part of that. I've never mm-hmm. seen, you can't see me, but, well, you can, but your listeners can't. I've never seen change go like this. You know, it's kind of like this. Up and down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Up and down squiggly. Right. Yeah. What's an example of kind of maybe one of the most profound changes you've seen in someone? Well, in 25 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> pick, pick a random one. <laughs> yeah, pick somebody random. The reason I ask is because I know for myself or for others that people are inspired by stories of hope and, you know, to see that there's a way to change. And I like to give people that hope when they when they hear about things like this or if they're relating to something. Well, I started the book talking about a young woman that uh, came into my practice, really tall, very attractive young woman, life, I would call her life, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's a good word for her. She'd had a a dance background, and uh, she was actually, she admitted to being anorexic, Um, and she was... um, she was she told me at the time that she had a very happy relationship and she was going to get married and then we started talking about okay well that's great and we'll talk about the anorexia which we began to piece that together then she told me more about some of her childhood and she said and laughing laughing she said yeah my my uh stepfather hit me so hard when i was 5 that i had to have multiple surgeries and i've always I don't think my nose looks right. And she laughed. <laughs> well, that's trauma. And so as I began trying to help her, and by the way, her mother did divorce the stepfather, but never would allow her to talk about what had happened. Um, so it was as if it was just this thing that required surgeries, but no one in the family called it anything but just oh well he you know he lost his temper but now he's gone so let's just go on so as we began to unravel all that and she revealed more and more of herself to me finally one day she said I've got to end my engagement and I said why and she said because he's physically abusive and she began telling me these things about him that were vile. Um, so, but she couldn't. I mean, she felt like she had to marry him because, well, this is a this was a fairly prominent family in the city where she was from, and she felt like everybody would be disappointed, and invitations had gone out, and the flowers had been ordered, and blah blah blah. So, she did end the engagement finally and uh he reacted not well and told some things about her history uh which i'm going to leave out of the story but let's just say it was something she was very ashamed of that she had done and so um when she um i promise your listeners i'm not making this up Mm -hmm. she's one of the people that 
at the end, about the second session before the end, she looked at me and she said, Margaret, when I walked in your door, this was my plan. I planned to get married and kill myself three weeks later. Oh my. And she went, she went on instead. She, I believe, went on and uh, continued her schooling. She had a job in one of the local corporations when she was here, but she decided she um, she's very, very bright and really wanted to do well. Her work was phenomenal. And there, uh, there, there, you can make major changes in yourself. If you go back and say, okay, how did I get to be the way I am? And both the good things, what do I like about myself? What are my strengths that are based on some of the great things I got? And what are my vulnerabilities? And it's the acceptance. You know, I say in the book, the antidote to perfectionism or to perfectly hidden depression is self-acceptance. Meaning you can look at yourself, your strengths, but you can also reveal your vulnerabilities without believing they define you. 100%. 100%. And I think a lot of people get stuck on that, that they're going to look weak or they're going to be a certain way if they just accept whatever it is they can't accept about themselves or just kind of have that self-love or just love yourself for whatever you are rather than try and fight it and always cause yourself this pain over and over again. Right. Brene Brown does a wonderful job. She has a Netflix presentation right now where she talks eloquently about This, you know, when you really think, if you reveal your vulnerability, not to everybody, you don't walk around and say, I was spoiled as a child, (laughs) you know, (laughs) hello, I'm Margaret, I was spoiled as a child, (laughs) but, um, you know, fun experiment though, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) but if, if, you know, to people who then say, well, I'm trying to help you, why are you so resistant, you know, and I'll go, you know, that's a problem of mine. I don't accept help well, and thank you for noticing, and I'm keeping on working on it. But if I reveal that vulnerability or something else, then when someone goes gets mad at me or something or or wants to criticize me, I've already revealed it. I already exactly. know it. 100%. It's like, so what? I'm exactly. impatient. I'm jealous. I get angry too quickly. I, um, I'm defensive. I, whatever it is. Right. If you just know it about yourself and begin to, you're not resigning yourself to it, mm-hmm. but you're accepting it in yourself. Acceptance is not resignation. Right. Acceptance just simply means you acknowledge that it's there and look for when it may be causing you some chaos. Mm, yeah, 100%. And so t- let's talk about that acceptance then. Is sure. there, can you accept something about yourself, but also want to change or or want yes. to make better or improve. That's why I said resignation, where you just say, well, I'm spoiled, or well, I'm jealous, or well, I get defensive, or well, I lose my temper too quickly. No, that's saying I'm okay with having a behavior that impacts my relationships negatively, and so what? You know, I don't care. Get over it. You knew that when you married me or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Instead, if you say, I accept this about myself, I know it about myself, and I'm going to accept responsibility for the fact that it's going to have impact and sometimes negative impact on other people. Mm-hmm. And so if it's a vulnerability, I, you know, I've worked with people who tend to lie. They just lie a lot. Mm-hmm. And so they'll say, okay, I know this is my problem. And I know it's because of some things, insecurity or wanting people to really like me, or I, I, I don't think I'm special. And so I lie and say I was on some team that I never was on or whatever. Then, you know, you can tend to look for that. And when you then want to lie, you can say, wait a minute, what's going on? And rather than going, oh, I can't believe I want to lie and just shaming yourself for it. You say, gosh, I want to say I'm a doctor and I'm really not. (laughs) (laughs) I want to lie to people that I'm a doctor (laughs) on some plane or something, you know. Yeah. So, um, you know, I I think you you just begin to accept the responsibility for it, but you you don't just go, ah, well, too bad. 
that's me. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Wow. So going back to, I guess, Perfectly Hidden Depression and the book and, you know, the goals that you set out to right. do with, with the book. Can we talk a little bit about the steps that you had outlined in the book on how to overcome this? Sure. Um, there, I, actually, I, I, my publisher, I had, I, the, the, let me say that again. Initially, I wrote this book simply describing perfectly hidden depression. And I thought that would be enough. And my publisher said to me, no, you need to have a strategy to get better. And I was petrified. How in the world was I going to come up with these steps that would help someone? I mean, I knew that I'd done it, but how to begin to formalize that. Mm-hmm. And they gave me two weeks to do it. <laughs> they said, we need that in two weeks. Like, oh. <laughs> mm-hmm. But then I just, I spent some time by myself and I thought, what, what are these things that I do with almost every patient I see, and probably every patient I see? And that is, I came up with these five steps. And then what I did, I just simply used that rubric to talk about perfectionism and, and how I could fit perfectionism into those stages. The five stages are consciousness, which we've already talked a lot about, mm-hmm. becoming aware that it's a problem. The second one is commitment. And that's what you were kind of saying about, well, what about if you make a mistake or you relapse, then you lose your commitment. You lose that drive or that determination to do something about it. There are other things, especially with perfectionism, uh, that like pushback from other people. Pe- people who count on you to be perfectionistic don't want you to not be. <laughs> mm, yeah. So, um, you know, but there are plenty of others that I talk about in the book. The third stage is confrontation. That's pulling heavily from cognitive behavioral work where you really look at these rules and beliefs that you have. Um, you know, uh, for example, a, a, a rule I, I might have developed because of being spoiled. Again, I keep using myself as an example, but why not? Uh, is I can never be the center of attention. You know, that could be then how I decided, okay, I can never be the center of attention, i.e. I can never write a book, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, that would be an overreaction. That would be a rule I was following or the rule, unfortunately, that I learned was y- you should always be the center of attention. No, I shouldn't. So, uh, again, you look at those beliefs that you formed that help you, that you're still living by that are really creating some chaos in your life. Perfectionists often have rules like I can never talk about my anger. I always have to do my best. I can never admit fatigue. I'm I whatever. I mean, I I can't ever let myself off the hook. You know, I'm a bit perfectionistic myself, and so I can remember working with a a therapist who looked at me and said, you don't always have to keep the thumb in your back to trust that you will be motivated to do something. You know, pressure, pressure, pressure. My rule was I must put pressure on myself all the time. No, you don't. So the fourth stage is connection. And this is where that trauma timeline comes in handy. This is where you want to learn how to express those emotions. You want to have that painful uh, reawakening sort of, uh, you want to go back or either, you know, maybe to your childhood, maybe to another relationship, whatever it is, and recognize the, the pain that you pushed away that you compartmentalized. And yes, it could be overwhelming to let some of that pain in. And so that's why working with a therapist can be very, because they know how hopefully to let you do that in small pieces. Mm-hmm. And then the fifth stage, you know, is we've already talked about it again is change. And I believe that change can happen very slowly. And I, I, there's a term I use in the book that I don't want people to move um, forward. I want them to move toward because I think it's about focusing more on the process, the journey, rather than the destination. You know, I've got to get, I've got to become imperfect. I've got to be okay with being imperfect mm-hmm. rather than I'm going to make some moves toward I'm going to learn how to play. I'm going to learn how to sit on my hands in a committee meeting and not take on a new, on a new um, task. I'm going to 
talk about, I'm going to go back to my mom and say, why didn't we ever talk about, you know, my dad hitting me, my stepdad hitting me, you know, and I, I, I need to talk, what, what, what was going on? I want to talk about that. I'm, I need to have compassion for that little girl. All those things happen slowly, but it, or actually it can feel like it's happening very quickly because you are making, you can make such, um, just going back and having compassion for yourself can make such a difference. Mm. It's beautiful. And are these steps outlined more detailed in your book? Yes, they are. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Yeah, they so, bought the book. So, <laughs> so, so I, I can imagine just, just being tremendously helpful for a lot of people um, to go through that. And so I'd highly recommend Dr. Margaret's book um, and to look at more deeply the perfectly hidden depression if you think this is something that you might be experiencing or dealing with. And I think all of us have maybe parts of those traits that are maybe encompassed in perfectly hidden depression, maybe not fully realized or maybe not on the full spectrum of things, but to a degree, I think a lot of people can identify with a lot of the traits that you mentioned earlier. Um, Any other things you'd like to add to that? That's a great question. Um, One, thank you for your endorsement and your time. Uh, that means so much. I'm, I'm so happy that this podcast reaches out to the medical community because I, you know, often physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs, whatever, are the first people that people go to, not mental health professionals. They will go to someone and say, gosh, I'm tired all the time, or, or I, I'm worried about something. I can't seem to stop worrying. Mm-hmm. And so y'all are often the gatekeeper for mental illness right. and or for a syndrome such as perfectly hidden depression, as I have described it. Mm-hmm. So raising your awareness or trying to is so paramount to me. Absolutely. I, te- I teach a, um, a psychotherapy class to medical students. They, they give me an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to talk about psychotherapy, but what I'm trying to um, institute when I, when I talk with them is this very idea mm-hmm. that now I do think it's better and it depends on the regions of country you live in, but here in Arkansas, it's, there's still some stigma to coming to a therapist. And so um, there's not stigma mm-hmm. to going to your primary care physician. Right. Right. So, you know, having a, a an idea of, gosh, maybe I need to look for that person who looks a little too perfect and could there be something underneath that? And instead of asking the question, do you ever feel hopeless? A lot of people hand people the Beck depression inventory. Right, right. Do you feel hopeless? Would mm-hmm. you ever admit to feeling hopeless? Right. 100%. And if they say, That's no, I wouldn't. Great no, I wouldn't. Yeah. yeah. So. That's an excellent point, honestly. And, um, I think bringing that even to my awareness and with my patients as a primary care doctor, I think it's tremendous for me too, just because I do have a very large chunk of patients that I do often refer to therapy. And I do screen with the questionnaires, with the PHQ-9 and with, you know, kind of like the the, the little bit of questions that we ask. But I think maybe looking a little bit deeper kind of at the bigger picture and having that at least knowing that there could be something more going on behind the scenes right. Um, right. is just very good to have in, in my awareness, especially. Well, again, I'm, I'm trying to, I do think that these people tend to fall through the cracks. The people that I interviewed, only a handful of them said, yes, my physician asked me the, the questions that I needed to be asked. And it was such a relief. And yet most of them said, no, I went and, nothing happened. Mm -hmm. And I I walked out again, shaming themselves. Mm -hmm. It's very unfortunate because I could very easily see that happening. Right. And, uh, you know, you physicians are are very pressured and time is difficult and you've got so much paperwork or not paperwork, but just (laughs) information. (laughs) Yeah. And so I, I have, I'm, I'm not over here 
thinking that this is easy thing to incorporate. But I do, that's, you know, I have said all along that what I want from this book is for it to reach the people who need to read it. Mm-hmm. And some of those people are physicians. Some of those people are medical professionals. So, um, yeah, or at least be aware of it, as you said. Absolutely. And I think that's a great mission and we're going to do our best to help reach as many people as, as we can with this podcast and get people to read the book and, you know, empower people to live a better life and to heal themselves and to, you know, not be hopeless, to right. feel inspired that they can change and to, um, you know, face face their demons and face their struggles with strength, with dignity. I think that's what it's all about. And I commend you. And I'm really glad that um, you could join me today. And I think this was, I always say this was my favorite talk. And today, this is my favorite talk. So I'm going to say that again. <laughs> <laughs> say it after every well, episode. <laughs> now, the, per- the perfectionistic part of me says, well, you know, now I've got to come on again and be better. <laughs> hey, anytime, anytime. You're more than welcome. I'd love to have you on here again and talk more in depth. And maybe we'll get some questions from our listeners for next time. That'd be great. Thank, Thank you so much, Rami. I appreciate it. Thank you. It. Where can people connect with you and find your work? Sure. Again, it's podcast. I have I know you have a podcast too. I do. It's called the Self Work Podcast, S E L F W O R K with Dr. Margaret Rutherford. And I do, I have lots of posts on perfectly hidden depression there. So if you're a little adverse to going into your local Barnes and Noble, you know, or there's also available in ebook. Mm-hmm. So, um, but that's my podcast. My website is drmargaretrutherford.com. And um, I'm on Instagram. I'm on Pinterest. I'm, you know, the typical stuff. So Awesome. That's perfect. All right, guys. Well, you know where to, f- to find her. Please check out her website and um, get yourself a copy. I do think that just from talking this brief amount of time with Dr. Rutherford, I know that you're going to you know, even if you get that one liner, sometimes when I read a book or something, there's that one line or two lines that make all the difference and make reading a whole book worth it just for that little bit of insight or that little bit that can help change your life. So guys, check it out. Thank you, Dr. Rutherford. Thank you so much, Rami. 